So now we come to the fifth vision, and this is chapter 4. The angelic messenger who had been speaking with me then returned and woke me, and as a person is wakened from sleep, he asked me, What do you see? I replied, I see a menorah of pure gold with a receptacle at the top and seven lamps and fourteen pipes going to the lamps. There are also two olive trees beside it, and one on the right of the receptacle and the other on the left. And then I asked the messenger who spoke with me, What are these, sir? And he replied, Don't you know what these are? So I responded, No, sir. Therefore he told me, These signify the word of Yahweh to Zerubbabel, not by, my, not by strength and not by power, but by the Spirit, says Yahweh, who rules over all. This took me several, several times to read, to make sense of all these pipes and all that kind of stuff, especially when different translations use different words. And then I read other people's views. There are several views. Like, this doesn't make sense. Nobody really gets what's going on here because I've read three different views of scholars saying, well, it's a pipe, 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 pipe here, and pipe, pipe, pipe. And then I was like, no, 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 it's not. <laughs> so here's a possibility. What we have, basically, what we know for sure is there's two trees, and they're olive trees. And these olive trees have some kind of tap on them that olive oil is seeping out of the trees. And the olive oil is seeping out of both trees and flowing into a bowl. And the bowl is collecting oil. And there's lamps on this bowl. Now that's where the dispute comes in. What's going on? Some people see that there's seven lamps on each bowl. So seven flames on each are on the bowl. And so there's just seven lights around it like the menorah. And so if you go to the internet and Google this, Almost every single picture shows a seven-branched menorah shining with pipes of olive oil coming from two trees into it. But that's not the way it's described. The menorah is never described as a bowl with branches coming off of it. And the idea of seven sevens, literally in the Hebrew, well, if you have seven sevens, then that's more than seven. If you have seven sevens and a bowl, then we're probably not looking at a menorah. We're not seeing a menorah here in the way that we see in the, the tabernacle. So remember in the tabernacle, there's a golden lampstand and it's seven branches. If you can't visualize that, think of the menorah in Hanukkah and eliminate one branch because they have eight. There's seven in the temple. They we're not talking about that. Most likely the way it's described is that there's a lampstand. This is where a lot of people get confused because the lampstand in the tabernacle refers to the whole seven-branch candle stand. But here, the lampstand is only referring to the stand itself. There's a stand, and on top of the stand, there's a bowl. And this bowl is full of oil. And two pipes, one from each olive oil tree, is pouring into the bowl. And then around the edge are seven menorahs sitting on the edge of the bowl. So envision seven seven-branched menorahs. So you have a menorah with seven branches and sitting on the edge of a bowl. And then a little bit over, there's another menorah with seven branches sitting on the bowl, and another one, another one, until you have seven of them. So how many lights would that make? There's 49. So there's seven lampstands sitting on this bowl with a total of 49 lights. This makes sense, symbolically speaking. Because seven is the number of completion, and they're talking about priesthood right now. The priests were in charge of maintaining the menorah in the um, tabernacle. 
But there's something different going on. This is 49. 49 is a multiple of 7. And the sabbatical year, every seventh year, there was a sabbatical year where the land had to rest, the slaves went free, and all debts got canceled. But the 49th year of the sabbatical was an even more special sabbatical year because the very next year after that, the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee was when land got rest, debts got canceled, slaves got set free, and all lands returned to its original owner. So God is now giving a vision of a 49 light um, candle stand, so to speak, with all this abundance of oil. And the idea is, what is happening now? They're going back to the promised land. They were enslaved, and now they're being set free. The debt of Israel's sin has now been canceled because the judgment of exile is taking care of it. And the, the land has rested. Remember the reason they went into exile for 70 years is because they'd never let the land rest in 490 years. So for every sabbatical year that they didn't do, 40, 70 of them, they had to let it rest. And so now that's over with too. And so this is the end of the land rest. And then they're being returned to their original lands. The lands are being restored to them. So this is the year of Jubilee. So most likely this candle stand is not a seven-branch candle stand. It's a seven-branch, seven-candle stands around this bowl, signifying that the year of Jubilee has come and that they're returning. And this is important, too, because when Christ, Isaiah, writes about the return as the year of Jubilee, he says, the year of Jubilee, behold, the Messiah will come, and he will set the captives free, and the blind will see, and the lame will walk, and all this kind of stuff. But that never really happened in the way that Isaiah visioned it when they came back. But then Jesus gets up when he comes in Nazareth and he opens it up to that very passage in Isaiah and he reads that and he says, today that has been fulfilled in me, saying that he is the year of Jubilee. And that makes sense because all these visions keep talking about priesthood and kingship and it keeps foreshadowing the branch that is yet to come. And so what he's now seeing is the year of Jubilee and Christ is going to fulfill that. Christ is going to fulfill that. So this is a candle stand, 49 branches, representing the coming of the year of Jubilee. And the ultimate Jubilee is Jesus Christ on the cross. Because that's when captives are really truly set free from slavery to sin and death. Does that make sense? I know different scholars have different views on how many branches there are, but in my opinion, when you take a view and it just kind of stands on its own, it's less... Le it's not as likely as when you take a view and all these pieces of the puzzle of the Bible start fitting into place. When, all, when you have this puzzle piece and it's all by himself, then you're like, oh, maybe I got a puzzle piece from a wrong puzzle somewhere and it got accidentally mixed in. But when you put a puzzle piece down and you find all these matches that start matching in and a picture starts becoming complete, that tends to make a strong argument for a correct view. And just seven branches... This feels like a repeat of the tabernacle. But that's already been done. But fitting with everything else, things seem to snap into place. Verse 7. Now, notice that he didn't know what this meant. And that's the other thing is, the angel responds and says, you should know this. You should know what this vision means. I mean, come on. You're the priest, or you're the prophet. You've been talking about priests. This is the menorah, that kind of stuff. 
Verse 7, What are you, the great mountain? What are you, you great mountain? Because of Zerubbabel, you will become a level plain, and he will bring forth the temple capstone, or most likely should be cornerstone. Capstone doesn't make sense, and we'll explain why. With shouting of grace, grace because of this. Moreover, the word of Yahweh came to me as follows. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundations of this temple, and his hands will complete it. Then you will know that Yahweh, who rules over all, has sent me to you. For who dares make a light of the small beginnings? These seven eyes will joyfully look on the ten tablet and Zerubbabel's hand. And these are the eyes of Yahweh who constantly range across the whole earth. So now he switches from this priestly imagery, menorah, and then he switches to Zerubbabel kingship, but then talks about Zerubbabel building the temple. And so here we see a connection between priests and temple again. And then he says Zerubbabel is going to lay the cornerstone of this temple. Your son your Bible say capstone. But that's probably not accurate because this word can mean capstone or cornerstone. And it's most like a cornerstone for the same reason that in 1 Peter chapter 2, when it says that Jesus is the living cornerstone, that can be translated capstone or cornerstone too. But here's why it's cornerstone. For two major reasons. One, capstones don't exist in Jewish buildings. A capstone, when you have an arch, you build this arch, and the capstone is that trapezoid stone that you place right in the center at the top that keeps the arch from collapsing in on itself. So it distributes the weight. In Jewish architecture, there's no capstones. They don't build arches. Things are more square. The temple does not have a capstone. It is so clear, he says, you will lay the stone of the temple. In 1 Peter, he says, Jesus is the living stone, and we're stones being built into them as the house of God. It is so obvious all throughout the Bible that the only temple that is holy, or the only building that is holy that God would ever be referring to is the temple. There is no other building in all the First Testament or Second Testament that is ever referenced in any kind of a way, any significant messianic, um, spiritual, holy um, dwelling of God in any kind of a way. So architecture doesn't allow for a capstone. Second thing is, there's no way Christ is the final stone. There's no way that we are all built as the foundation, and then Christ builds himself on top of us. Yeah, we make a great foundation. (laughs) That does not make sense in any kind of a way. And so to argue that we are the foundation and Jesus is built on us, completely is not logical in a theological sense that only he can lay out our salvation. It also doesn't fit with Christ talking about the wise man who built his house on the human who is sinful and untrustworthy. No, the rock who is God. All throughout the Bible, God is called the rock. So it's clear that this is a foundational stone. The other thing that kind of points to it in a historical sense is at this point, the first thing that was laid was the foundation stone, and that's all that's been laid so far, because remember, they quit building the temple after the foundation stone. It makes sense that this is the first thing that you would lay down, because he's talking about him laying the stone down. So this is a cornerstone, that everything horizontally and vertically gets leveled off of on that sense. 
He's talking about Zerubbabel being the center of the temple. Verse 11. Next I asked the messenger, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the menorah? Before he could reply, I asked again, what are these two extensions of the olive tree which are emptying out in the golden oil through the two golden pipes? And he replied, don't you know what these are? Now notice how many times Zechariah asked the question, what is this? And the angel's like, why don't you know this? Like, aren't you a prophet? You're supposed to know this. He said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by Yahweh of the whole earth. The angel doesn't give him a whole lot of detail because the implication is if I tell you just a little bit, that should jog that memory of yours and you should be able to understand it all. But when he asks what are the two olive trees, the angel says these are the two anointed ones. But the only anointed ones that we've seen anywhere in any of these visions are Zerubbabel the governor slash king and Joshua the high priest. And we've seen that the branch is called the Messiah and the branch is also connected to the priesthood. The temple is connected to priesthood and the menorah is, yet Zerubbabel is kingship building the temple. And so the only people that are being anointed here are Zerubbabel and Joshua. And so most likely these two olive trees represent kingship and priesthood. And that both kingship and priesthood are going to give the olive oil of life, which represents anointing, to produce the year of Jubilee. It's the king priest who's going to produce the year of Jubilee. And we know that. That makes sense because the only person that can defeat all evil in the world is the king, Jesus. And the only one who can make atonement for sins is the high priest, Jesus. So the only one who can really bring a true Jubilee is Jesus, the king and priest. So this, the two olive trees are the two offices of Jesus pouring into the temple of God, the light of the world. And then Jesus also comes along and says, I am the light of the world, referring to that lampstand in the temple. We come to the sixth vision in chapter 5. Then I turned to look, and there was me a flying scroll. And someone asked me, what do you see? I replied, I see a flying scroll, 30 feet long and 15 feet wide. The speaker went on to say, this is a curse traveling across the whole earth. For example, according to the curse, whoever steals will be removed from the community. Or on the other hand, according to the curse, whoever answers falsely will suffer the same fate. I will send it out, says Yahweh, who rules over all, and it will enter the the house of the thief and the person who swears falsely in my name, and it will land in the middle of the house and destroy both timber and stones. You see this flying scroll. And of course the scroll always represents the word of God. But this isn't just the word of God. It's told that it's, this is the curse of God. This is most likely referring to Deuteronomy chapter 28 where God lays out the curses for anyone who violates the law. But it also refers to the Ten Commandments because when he, he quotes the curse, he mentions two quotes, two curses, the thief and the false testimony. And this specifically refers to the Eighth Commandment, the thief, or stealing, and the Third Commandment, which is, Thou shalt not bear false testimony. And then it says, now, why only these two commands? Most likely these are two commands that are parts that refer to the whole. So when you mention two parts, the implication is the whole, like the Alpha and the Omega are two parts that refer to the whole, the whole alphabet from beginning to end and everything in between. 
And then he says, this curse will go into every house of every person who has violated it and destroy their home, destroy their land. And the idea that is communicated here is, Israel, your land and your homes have been destroyed because you violated the Mosaic Covenant, the law of God. Now you've been restored and redeemed. And I've dressed you in white clothing. But Deuteronomy is still invoked. The law of God will still bring judgments and cursing if you violate it. Don't think we've paid our dues and now are free to do whatever we want. Or that there's no danger of exile ever again. And what God is warning them is that exile can still come. Exile can still come. So that brings us to the seventh vision, which is chapter 5, verse 5. After this, the angelic messenger who had been speaking to me went out and said, Look, see what is, what is leaving. I asked, What is it? He replied, It is a basket of measuring grain that is moving away from here. Moreover, he said, This is their eye throughout all the earth. Then a round lead cover was raised up, revealing a woman sitting inside the basket. And then he said, this woman represents wickedness. And he pushed her down into the basket and placed the lead cover on top. Then I looked again and saw two women going forth with the wind in their wings. And they had wings like those of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between the earth and the sky. And I asked the messenger who was speaking to me, where are they taking the basket? And he replied to build a temple for her in the land of Babylon. When it is finished, she will be placed there in her own residence. You're like, okay, this is weird. Two women with the wings of storks are carrying a woman that's shoved in a basket and flying away with a lead lid. Now, what this idea is representing is that the woman in the basket represents wickedness and sin. And the sin has been in prison. So God has put a lead lid on it, and he cracked it open so that Zechariah could see what's in it, sin. And he puts the lead lid back on it, and the idea is lead is sealing it down. It's a great weight. And the, judge, the, the wickedness is contained in a basket. And then these women, these winged women, are flying it off to exile, flying it off to Babylon in order to be imprisoned there, and the wickedness is going to be left there. The, why do they have stork wings? No one really knows, but the guess is that storks are unclean animals. And so the idea is that these women are unclean because they're carrying sin, which is unclean, off into exile. And the idea is that God will carry away sin into judgment if sin exists, and he will contain it. That brings us to the eighth vision. Chapter 6, verse 1. Once more I looked up, Looked, and this time I saw four chariots emerging from between two mountains of bronze. Harnessed to the first chariot were red horses, to the second black horses, and to the third white horses, and to the fourth spotted horses, and all of them strong. Then I will ask the angelic messenger who was speaking with me, What are these, sir? Once again he's asking, I don't know what this is. The messenger replied, These are the four spirits of heaven, that have, been, that have been presenting themselves before Yahweh of the earth. The chariot with the black horses is going to the north country. The white ones are going after them. But the spotted ones are going to the south country. All these strong ones are scattering 
And they have sought permission to go and walk about the earth. Yahweh had said, go, walk over about the earth. So they were doing so. And then he cried out to me, look, the ones going to the Northland have brought me peace about the Northland. We don't know exactly what's going on here. These horsemen match up with the first set of horsemen that we saw in the first vision. The idea of their different colors seem to just represent their distinctiveness from each other. Two horses go northward, and one horse goes southward, and the red horse doesn't go anywhere. And the idea is that they're bringing judgment on things. There's a scattering. There's a judgment that is happening. And it seems the idea that judgment is falling on north, middle part, Israel, and the south. And that God is backing this. God is sending this and directing this. Other than this, it's hard to know what's going on here. It's hard to know what's really truly being represented. So these are the eight visions that Zechariah received. And he didn't know what any of them meant, and they constantly had to be explained to him on multiple occasions. These eight visions are wrapped up with a final oracle, a final prophecy that God gives. In chapter 6, verse 9, The word of Yahweh came to me as follows, Choose some people from among the exiles, namely Heladiah, Tobajah, and Jedidiah, all of who have come from Babylon. And when you have done so, go to the house of Josh, Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Then take some silver and gold to make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, son of Jehoiazadak, the high priest. And then say to him, Yahweh who rules over all says, Look, here is the man whose name is Branch, who will sprout up from his place and build the temple of Yahweh. Indeed, he will build the temple of Yahweh, and he will be clothed in splendor, sitting as a king on his throne. Moreover, there will be a priest with him on his throne, and they will see eye to eye in everything. The crown will then be turned over to Helam, Tobijai, Zedai, and Hen, son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of Yahweh. Then those who are far away will come and build the temple of Yahweh, so that you may know that Yahweh who rules over all has sent me to you. This will come to pass if you completely obey the voice of Yahweh your God. Now this is one of the most powerful prophecies in the Bible that for some reason doesn't get talked about like ever. I don't, I don't ever, I've never heard of this prophecy ever growing up in the church in any kind of way. And I still haven't heard it. Joshua is the high priest. And God says, make a king's crown and put it on his head and he will sit on the throne as king. You don't get any more obvious that this is king and priest than that. And then he says that the priest will also sit on the throne with him. It's like, okay, wait a minute. Joshua is the priest who's going to be made king, and Joshua sits on the throne as king-priest, but the priest will also sit there with them. Well, all this language is communicating the idea that the throne is one throne with king and priest on it, and the king and the priest will agree on everything because the idea is they'll be one and the same. They'll be like-minded. Remember, according to the law, no one's allowed to be king and priest simultaneously. So under the law, God cannot approve of this, allow this. This is why the crown is put on his head, but then God says, now take it off and put it in the temple as a memorial. 
because you're still under the Mosaic law and you can't wear that Joshua. Don't think that you're king and priest both simultaneously. He's not allowed to wear it because it's legally not allowed according to the Mosaic law. When Saul, as king, tried to function as priest to make an animal sacrifice, God judged him and condemned him and took the kingship away from him and ultimately killed him. Now he's saying you can't do this. So this is a memorial. This is an example. So the fact that he is wearing both suggests that this is one of the same. Then the fact that he sits on the throne with king and priest sitting on the same throne, one throne, well, that would be really awkward and weird and nobody would respect two people trying to squeeze into one throne. So that's not likely. Two, the fact that they agree on everything, find me two people who do that. Just really, like, there's no two people who agree on everything, are like-minded in everything. All this communicates is one ship, one being. This obviously points to Jesus. It points to the kingship and the priesthood of Jesus. And then he even emphasizes even more that this is the branch who will sprout up, and the implication is Isaiah, from the root of Jesse. And he will build the temple. Now notice that he's going to build the temple. This should immediately remind you of First John chapter, sorry, John, the Gospel of John chapter 2, when Jesus says, tear down this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it. And they did not know that he was talking about his body. That's the temple he's going to build. And remember, Ezekiel had a vision, this glorious temple, and that temple is Jesus, especially with the water coming out of the side and the water coming out of Jesus' side on the cross. And that's the temple. But then it says that people will come from far in order to build the temple as well. Now remember, Zerubbabel just sent a whole bunch of people away and said, we don't want you to help me build a temple. You can't do that which is kind of okay and kind of not, but it was in that gray area. But remember when we get to Ephesians and in Romans, Paul will say, you Gentiles were once far away, but have now been made near in Christ as one body. There is no more barrier wall between Jew and Gentile. The barrier wall he's talking about is the fence around the courtyard of the temple. And remember, the wall in Ezekiel's vision was so low to the ground that you could step over it, but there were multiple gates that were super big. If you have small walls and high open gates, you're letting people in and not trying to keep people out. Paul says the barrier wall has been torn down, that separating courtyard. You have once been far away. Gentiles are now made near. And then he refers to, Peter refers to all believers as the living stones being built into the temple. And so the idea is that the shoot of David, Jesus, will rise up as king, but then on the cross he'll take the priesthood and rebuild a new temple where he is the temple, and then that we're going to be built into him, Jew and Gentile, far and near. And then this is why he says in John, remain in me and I'll remain in you. We are all one. And this passage is foreshadowing the king and priesthood of Christ, wrapped up in him being the temple and the believers being the temple with him, and therefore we are also king and high priest simultaneously. This is foreshadowing that. This also re-strengthens the idea that the two olive trees are king and priesthood pouring into the same light. Jesus is the light of the world. And then if we're in him, we're also called 
lights of the world as well. So these visions, as weird as they might be, half of them are kind of like, okay, judgment, 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 weird, 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 weird. But the other half clearly point to king priesthood, the king priests. This is strengthened even more when you look back and the first time that we ever see king priesthood is in Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, it says that Yahweh said to my master, sit at my right hand. Now, David's writing this. Now, I know I talked about this back in when we went through Psalms, but I'm going to talk about it again because this is the linchpin for Jesus' argument of who he is to the Pharisees. So the Pharisees come along and say, oh, if you're, if you're the, the, the Messiah, prove it to us. We, who should we pay taxes to? Of course, Jesus owns them on that by giving them a good answer. So that's the Pharisees. The Sadducees come along, they're like, oh, we got one for you. If a woman is married and her husband dies, and she's married again, dies, marries again, dies, which is it? Who is she going to be married to in the afterlife? And Jesus totally owns them on that one. So he owns them all up. Now it's time for him to own them. This is like one of my favorite scenes in Jesus' life. He just like owns them. So we need him now in politics. He says, you've heard it said in Psalm 110, but he doesn't say 110, but everybody knows what he's talking about. Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until you make my, your enemies a footstool. He says, who is the Lord that David is talking about? Now, the Pharisees all believe that the Lord was Solomon. Because it's clear that there's three masters in picture. Because David is a king. He's the master of the whole nation. And he says to Yahweh, who is the master of the whole universe, he says that Yahweh says to my Lord. Well, if he's saying that Yahweh is speaking to his Lord, then Yahweh and the Lord have to be two different beings. And if it's his Lord, then that means that Lord and then the Yahweh are both above him. Now, it's obvious that Yahweh is above David, but the question is, who's between Yahweh and David that's above David? Who's that Lord? Now, a lot of the Pharisees are like, well, there's no one. David's the king, the highest man in the entire land, and there's no one who's equal or anywhere close to to, to Yahweh. So it must be Solomon, because Solomon's the only one who built like a kingdom that far exceeded David and that kind of stuff. That's why Jesus comes. But they knew that wasn't right. They just didn't have an answer. Because there were other people that argued like, well, wait a minute, we know that the, ma- the son is never greater than the father. And that's a Jewish law. This is the argument the author of Hebrews is going to make that, G- that Abraham is superior to Levi because the father is always greater than the son. And Levi is a priest, but Abraham was appointed by God before the law and priesthood existed so there's a descendant that can come from Abraham that supersedes the priesthood because they're all Levites. So that's one argument. So Jesus comes and says, it can't be Solomon because a son is never greater than his master. Who is it? And they're like, we don't know. And he's like, then I won't tell you who I am. <laughs> the day you can figure that one out is the day that you'll figure out who I am. Because the implication is that Lord is him. If that's truly him then what the Yahweh is saying is, I am making you Jesus king, and you will sit on the throne of Israel, and I will make the enemy your footstool. But then it goes on and says, and behold, you're a priest and the order of Melchizedek forever. Well, 
David writes this, but you know David has no idea what he's writing because that's illegal. It's absolutely illegal for somebody to be king and priest simultaneously. This is why the author of Hebrews builds his entire argument on Psalm 110. And the whole argument of Hebrews is Jesus, king and priest. And he starts with kingship, and then chapter 4, he hints at priesthood. And then in chapter 7, he just opens both barrels of the gun on priesthood and lays it on you. And you're like, wait a minute, this is a violation of the law. But then he goes in Hebrews and says, therefore, the law never said anything about kings being priests. It's not allowed. But it also never said anything about um, the, the Levites being kings. Neither one could cross over. So that means the law doesn't exist anymore. And if the priesthood, the priesthood is the foundation of the law, because what made the law happen? Sacrifices. The sacrifice is what initiated the law. And the law can only be maintained through sacrifices because we constantly violate the law, and the only thing that keeps the law going is sacrifices. So if you get rid of the priesthood, the law disappears. So if you replace it with a new priest, a Judaite, then it brings in a new law. And that's the whole argument of Hebrews. A new priesthood, a new law. A new priesthood, a new foundation. This is the foundation that's being talked about here. And this is the king priest. And David foresaw a day that king and priest will simultaneously exist, but he did not know how it could legally work. And the way that it legally worked is that Jesus lived a perfect kingly life fulfilling all the requirements of the law. Therefore, the law became fulfilled in him because somebody actually righteously met the requirements of the law. Therefore, the law has no power over anybody anymore because it's now been met. Then that person who met all the requirements of the law was now perfect. Therefore, that perfect person can now become the priest, the sacrificial lamb that dies on the cross for everybody who has ever violated the law. Once he fulfills the law, the law has no power. Once he fulfills the punishment of the law, death, the law has no power. Therefore, there's no need for the law. And because he fulfills the law and meets the requirements of the punishment of the law, then he becomes the law and he can write the law however he wants. And in this law, he, as a minister of Judah, is priest too. And then, therefore, he brings in a new covenant that can actually save. And that's the main argument of the author of Hebrews that is the starting point is Psalm 110 and Zechariah chapter 6. Those two things are the foundational argument for the whole argument of Hebrews. I think Hebrews is by far one of the most phenomenal arguments in the entire Bible. And you have to know the First Testament well to get that argument. Romans, you don't really have to have a great understanding of the First Testament. Hebrews, you do. And so this is what he's arguing for. So, now going back. So Jesus is before Caiaphas, and Caiaphas says, who do you say you are? And Jesus then in that moment says, behold, you will see this Son of Man coming on the clouds to bring judgment to you one day. Jesus answers that. He finally answers the question that he asked them that they couldn't answer because they asked him, do you say you're king? And he says, yes. But at the same time, he's about ready to go to the cross, which means he's also priest. And it's at that moment that he says, I am the son of man from Daniel, 
who will be writing on the clouds from Daniel to judge you. So in that moment, he tells Caiaphas, I am God, I am king, I am priest. And that's why Caiaphas says, you've heard it from his own mouth, blasphemy. And then modern day atheists say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Caiaphas believed that he did. (laughs) But you have to understand Judaism to understand that claim. All this is coming in in Jesus. 